Hello, my name is Bridget Helms. I'm the Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship, and this is Line of Sight. My name is Don Heider. I'm the Executive Director of the Markless Center for Applied Ethics, also at Santa Clara. We're excited and delighted to have with us today Dr. Gloria Duffy. Uh, Gloria has been President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club since 1996. She oversees the organizational strategy, programming, publications, outreach, membership, and fundraising for the nation's largest and oldest public affairs forum. Dr. Duffy has uh, initiated several special projects at the club, including a thing called Voices of Reform, now the independent organization California Forward. These efforts have convened experts and stakeholders in challenging fields to build consensus for solutions and action. Dr. Duffy led the club to produce its first full-time film, Final Choice, for PBS in 1998, and oversaw the editing and publication of Each a Mighty Voice, which was published by Heyday Press in 2004. She led the building search and capital campaign that enabled the club to purchase 110 the Embarcadero, which will serve as its permanent headquarters and the first time the organization has owned its own home. Prior to becoming president and CEO of the Commonwealth Club, Dr. Duffy was the U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense and Special Coordinator for Cooperative Threat Reduction. Dr. Duffy received her A.B. Magna Cum Laude in 1975 from Occidental College, her M.A. and Master's in Philosophy and Ph.D., all in political science from Columbia University, where she studied at the Harriman Institute. She also holds a Doctor of Humane Letters awarded by the University of San Francisco. That was awarded in 2006. Gloria, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Don, it's a pleasure. Let's start by talking about what you think the preeminent challenges you see for creating a more just, equitable, and sustainable world. Well, uh, obviously reaching consensus about what that means is one of the challenges, uh, especially when we have a very polarized uh, set of views in our society here in the US. And uh, also dealing with um, institutional and other barriers and challenges to making the progress that we need to make in, in those areas, whether it be combating climate change or uh, having greater equity and justice in our society. So there are a number of challenges, but those are a couple. You know, I was curious for your title uh, when you were working in defense about uh, trying to assess threat. What do you think the greatest threat is to having us work towards an ethical and sustainable world? Do you think it's internal or external to the United States? Oh, gosh. Well, we have a lot of threats externally, uh, and some are very big. Um, obviously, we still have a threat of tens of thousands of nuclear weapons in the world uh, and some real instability in that area now with the blurring of the distinctions between nuclear and conventional weapons and the possible conflict we're seeing now between Russia and Ukraine, uh, possibly drawing in the U.S. So we have, you know, nuclear standoffs, potential nuclear standoffs, great investment and development of high-tech weaponry at this point. So that is still the greatest existential threat, the threat of annihilation through nuclear weapons. And that's why I chose in college to focus on that and to devote a large part of my career to it, because nothing can destroy our 
globe like, like nuclear weapons. Second after that is the more uh, subtle but uh, accelerating threat of climate change. And, uh, you know, we all read about this and we all know about it. I am finding more and more that my daily life is impacted by climate change in a variety of ways, and I'd be happy to talk about those. Uh, and um, so, you know, the, these are the, some of the threats. We also have threats, you know, embodied by the behavior of other countries, but it's more these um, huge threats, not necessarily embodied in a country like Nazi Germany or something like that. They're, they're more subtle. And they require a lot of collaboration globally to combat them because they're so broad and widespread. Wow. You know, I totally did not expect you to say nuclear weapons. Honestly, I did. I, you know, uh, as a kid who grew up, you know, duck and cover and mortally afraid of the nuclear threat from the Soviet Union uh, uh, at the time, you know, uh, it feels like nobody's really talking about that uh, anymore. Can you, can you say a little bit more about that? Sure. So it is a common perception that after the end of the Cold War, the nuclear threat diminished a lot. And I had the privilege of being involved in a very exciting effort to get rid of the nuclear weapons in several of the former Soviet countries after the Soviet Union broke up. So we avoided having several more nuclear powers in the world by convincing Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan not to become nuclear powers and Russia to reduce some uh, and better protect the weapons on their territory. So all of that, you know, into the mid 90s was a big success. But a lot of what has been happening since then is actually uh, a growing rift between the US and Russia. Uh, that was an era of cooperation, you know, in the 90s, but growing rift uh, and then um, programs to increase, modernize, perfect, and further develop weapons of mass destruction that it has been going on since then. So um, today it's, you know, hypersonic weapons, it's the application of AI to weapons, it's actually modernization and new uh, generations of nuclear weapons by both the US and Russia and China. Recent intelligence shows some evidence that China may be almost doubling the size of its deployed nuclear arsenal. So it's a problem that is not so much in the focus of the media, but it is uh, growing, it's, it's still there and it's growing. There are a few things going on. Uh, and the other thing that's happened, of course, is abandonment of several of the arms control treaties uh, in prior years. The Intermediate Nuclear Range Forces Treaty has been abandoned. The, uh, there are several others. And um, so there are some talks going on at the moment. I, I've been part of a working group of former US officials from several different administrations, bipartisan, on what's called strategic stability. Uh, and there are now some talks going on between the Biden administration and the Putin administration uh, about this concept of strategic stability. Is the increase in weaponry and the increasing sophistication of weaponry about to upset deterrence and, and the stability that has occurred, you know, since the beginning of the nuclear age, as fragile as it's been, it has been somewhat stable. There are some trends that threaten to upset that stability. So there is a little bit of thought and work going on on this topic. Uh, and if you look carefully, you can see that there are some talks going on between our, our country and Russia. 
So, so very interesting. You know, um, I, I also studied political science uh, as an undergraduate here at Santa Clara, as a matter of fact, as my first degree, and then went on and did an international relations uh, master's at SAIS, Johns Hopkins SAIS. And we learned a lot about that. That, that was really before uh, the transition from Soviet Union to Russia. So like, I really was steeped in all of that, you know, conversation around foreign policy and, and deterrence and all of that stuff. And it's just so incredible. You're right, though. Why would it have just sort of disappeared? I mean, it's not logical to think that now that I'm reflecting on it, but on, but I think I did. And which is comes to my, I think my next point, you did raise it about like, you know, what people pay attention to, what's in the news, what, what's the information we get, which is copious, right? Um, so I'd like to ask about the importance of a balanced public information and dialogue in terms of challenging societal issues like, like this and others. Sure. And, you know, the shrinkage of the news media has definitely impacted uh, the lack of coverage of such dramatic issues as the nuclear threat. Uh, as, you know, budgets have diminished and there are no longer, you know, a lot of foreign correspondence there. It's, it's a difficult issue to cover. It's complicated, it involves science, technology, society, economics, etc. And so we've seen a real shrinkage of media that's able to field reporters and investigators to cover Washington, to cover what's going on in Moscow or, or Beijing and so on. So um, it is extremely important to have good information and balanced information. And of course, that's what the Commonwealth Club is dedicated to. We've, for 119 years, we have been uh, offering authoritative, uh, opinionated, interesting uh, views and information to the public. Uh, some from experts, government officials, uh, journalists, and others. So the more we put out in the public realm, I've always believed uh, it, the, the better citizens will we, ha we will have, the better voters will have. Uh, you know, citizenship takes time and effort, and it takes talking to one another and expressing views and debating and so on. So extremely important. It's the basis of a democratic society. We don't seem to be talking to each other much in the United States these days. Do you see there's hope there to talk to each other again? And if so, what's that path forward to begin talking to each other again, especially people on disparate sides of the political spectrum? Well, I think there are, uh, there's attention to this at many levels and in many ways. Uh, I think, you know, among the causes are the education system, electronic devices, the lack of, you know, Walter Cronkite isn't there anymore to tell us, you know, what the news is. And people can choose their own sources and their own, you know, information aligning with their own philosophy. So I think the trends have been anal analyzed quite a bit. I think there are quite a few um, projects and programs now that are trying to counteract that that bring people together from different perspectives. I mean, there's a, a version I know of StoryCorps now, which is bringing together that 60 Minutes covered the other night, that's bringing together people from different viewpoints to talk to one another and sort of to interview each other. And we do this every day at the Commonwealth Club. And so I do see that there's a recognition of the issue and an effort to fix it within education, within the media, within society in general. 
And uh, there are a lot of organizations that are still cooking along, doing this all the time, like the Rotary Clubs and so on, which have speakers and discussion and so on. So there's a lot of it maybe that doesn't catch the attention of the media. Uh, there is a lot of it going on uh, under the surface, but always can have more. It's always a good idea to make the discussion as broad as possible. That's awesome. I really appreciate the work that you're doing along those lines. I know it's not, it can't be easy. Um, one of the topics that I've been really interested in and that relates you know, a bit to the work that we do here is this notion of reinventing capitalism. You know, do we need a reboot on this system? And I'd love to hear your perspective on that topic and whether or not that's something that you are discussing at the Commonwealth Club as well. Well, I think we're, we're all discussing that in one way or another. Um, you know, we've seen, we have issues related to monopolistic practices. Uh, we certainly discuss that here in Silicon Valley uh, with some of the social media companies and other tech companies. So yes, I think uh, we do need a reboot. Uh, I don't know that we need draconian action by the federal government or anything like that. Uh, but I think, you know, the trend within companies to reflect on themselves and about the um, their own equity and justice issues, about what they are contributing to society, whether it's beneficial or harmful. Um, you know, I think you've seen a number of companies on their own, even Walmart, put out fairly near-term goals of net zero operations. Google says... Uh, you know, net zero uh, in, in the near future. And of course, a number of charitable foundations and university endowments and so on are, are um, on board uh, getting away from fossil fuels. So I think that the conversations underway right now uh, in many organizations and many companies uh, will do some of what we need to do to fix this. You know, the business sector in the U.S. is very creative. Uh, there's a lot of creativity there. And if there is benefit to the bottom line or benefit from image an image standpoint, I think these conversations are taking place within companies now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being in a university, lots of exposure to, to young people. And also I have a son who's a junior in college as well. And, you know, he came home, well, not really home, but, you know, we talked one day and he said, you know, mama, I'm not sure that capitalism and democracy can really coexist. I mean, I think the young people are really skeptical. They're seeing all of the kind of downsides. And, you know, I suppose that that's a sign of hope in the sense that they're going to go out there in the job market and start to advocate for some of the, the changes that need to, to happen. Um, do, do you engage directly with youth on, on this and other topics? Yeah, we do. We have a, a K-12 civics education project called Creating Citizens, uh, and it is um, doing a number of things. Uh, it has a lot of activities, uh, some youth talks in which uh, young people, students uh, are on the platform of the Commonwealth Club. We send a couple students every year on an travel programs at the club, and we have an Arctic cruise and we have a fellowship for two students to go on that to see the impact of climate change uh, up close and personal on an icebreaker. And um, we have a variety of other 
programs and projects oriented to young people. We have a book award contest that focuses on some youth literature, and we have uh, young people as participants in the selection process uh, for those who uh, receive the awards. So uh, working with young people is increasingly threaded through what the Commonwealth Club does. And by that, I mean the K-12 student population. We also have fellows at the club uh, from UC Berkeley, stu- you know, students, college students. We have young professionals involved in, in a variety of ways. And uh, so increasingly, we are spending more time uh, on our youth-oriented activities. Can you talk a little bit about what the Commonwealth Club's doing to address equity and justice, ethics and sustainability? Well, first of all, you mentioned our beautiful building. It was built... Uh, as a lead, it's actually a lead gold building, and it has some very interesting environmental aspects to it. Uh, we could not, because of its location, we could not achieve platinum or net zero, but we were able to cool almost entirely with Bay Air. We're on the waterfront in San Francisco. It's a system of big fans and electronically opening windows that I actually took from the Packard Foundation's headquarters in Los Altos. They, they sort of proved out that system. And um, so we have a variety of other systems at the club. And so um, are including, um, you know, tile made out of crushed Toto toilets and re- a variety of reusable materials. We, we took a building that had been built in 1915 and we had to almost completely demolish it to build a building for our uses. We saved all the wood in the building and it's now all the paneling and um, other wood in inside the building. Uh, we sent it to a company in Oregon to be remilled and stained for us. And it's all of our acoustical paneling throughout the building. So uh, we built an environmentally sustainable building We have uh, had for 12 years a major project on climate change at the club called Climate One, which educates and and creates debate and discussion among all the different fields that have something to say about climate change, science, technology, the food industry, the energy industry, uh, anything, construction, architecture, anything that has uh, an impact on the climate. There's constant dialogue, there's podcasts, there's uh, some, um, you know, video broadcasts and a TV program and so on. Um, So that sustainability wise, uh, we spend a lot of time on educating people about it. And we also try to practice it ourselves. On equity and justice, there are two parts of this. One is who's on our platform. And um, I I have to say, there was a discussion forum. Uh, in, there's a discussion forum in Canada, and its president visited me, and he referred to a manel. That's a, a panel with all men, and uh, so you know there are various types of homogeneous uh, panels and and uh, speaker programs and so on. Uh, we try to not be one of those. Uh, we believe in representation, and that includes women. It includes various. Uh, gender and sexual orientations. In fact, we have an entire program series, the Michelle Miao Show, on issues of interest to the LGBTQI community. Uh, And then we have diversity uh, in our uh, moderators and who's on our platform and also the topics. We address a lot of social justice-oriented topics. 
Then we have our internal uh, issues uh, where since June of 2020, I've had an internal equity and justice task force that is um, part- has participation from all our departments uh, at the club on a voluntary basis. And um, we have actually gone through 64 different issues that people bring up that have to do with equity and justice. And it started with, uh, we looked for anyone who was a contractor at the club who was working full time and did not have benefits and was not a regular employee. So we tried to fix and we found one case at that time and uh, offered the person a, um, a full time you know, job with benefits. And so we tried to, we looked at pay equity and equity of status. Then the most recent of those uh, 64 items that we have addressed uh, is that we were fortunate to have a Native American land acknowledgement drafted for us at our request by Val Lopez, who's the chairman of the Ama Mutson Band of the Ohlone people. And um, so we are about to put a little plaque on our building and um, also to put on our website uh, the the acknowledgement that they, the appropriate acknowledgement that they drafted for us. And so we've attempted to address in a kind of a, a group sourced way, um, any equity and justice issues that people on our staff are concerned about. And um, so that's been our process internally. So uh, let me mention one other thing. The Commonwealth Club is a very broad platform. We have had views expressed from one end of the spectrum to another over time. We talked, well, last year in 2020 about, is there a speech that's inappropriate? And I think this is something we're looking at nationally in in this country, Um, you know, uh, and we decided there are certain boundaries around the speech at the club, no hate speech, and, you know, nothing that demeans any group of people and we have we 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 worked through as what we call our statement of values, which is posted on our website, um, which includes putting for the first time in the club's uh, nearly 120 year history, just putting some boundaries uh, regarding um, attacks on other people and groups and and so on at the club. So first time it was a, quite a process of trying to discuss and define without inhibiting free speech. Uh, what are the boundaries here? And um, so those are the kind of issues we've, we've dealt with in our equity and justice task force. Let me ask you this. You know, uh, I've always thought of San Francisco, which is your home of the club, as sort of a magical city, an interesting city. It's certainly a city that's had its controversies over the year. But I think San Francisco is in has some, a number of serious threats right now. I think the homelessness issue is just absolutely coming to a head. I think the high cost of housing has really been a huge threat to uh, people of color and Lynn, especially it's a class issue in terms of who can live, still remain in the city and who can't. Workers, you know, have to travel miles to work in the city who can't afford to live there. Um, I'd say the infrastructure system, you know, BART used to be one of the best systems in the country. It's facing incredible disarray and criticism um, you know, and, and I know they're fighting to try to get BART back in line, but it's, it's definitely, uh, and then COVID, of course, didn't help anything. There's a huge crime problem. You know, s- several stores have closed just because they cannot 
deal with the crime issue and don't know how to do it in a humane way. So, I, you know, the, San Francisco really at this moment seems to be in fairly serious crisis mode. And so how do you see the Commonwealth Club as playing a part in that? And, and what do you think the future of the city is? Thank you, Don. And I would say also, um, it's not just San Francisco. Um, you know, I, you know that I live right by the Santa Clara University campus, and I'm normally a Caltrain commuter to San Francisco. Uh, but um, I spend time in downtown San Jose, and I've been involved uh, in the establishment and, and uh, growth of the Guadalupe River Park. And um, there's a terrible situation there with regard to homelessness and encampments. And uh, so anyway, I'll, I'm happy to comment on San Francisco, but I would just say it's in a number of different places, L.A. as well. So um, obviously the Commonwealth Club will be part of the change in the sense that we are holding some in-person events. We, we established a very firm policy uh, some time ago that people are required to be vaccinated to come into our space. Uh, we're using N95 masks. We're spreading people out at half capacity and any eating and drinking goes on on our rooftop, which is open air. So with those safety precautions, we actually haven't had to change anything through Omicron. We, we adopted them before that. And we are having some in-person events at this reduced capacity with these precautions. And so we are bringing people back into San Francisco to attend events at the Commonwealth Club, which is some kind of help. Um, obviously, we sponsor events and discussions related to the uh, problems that you're talking about. We actually had one on Monday, uh, an author by the name of Michael Schellenberger, who's very controversial, uh, who is um, convinced that idealistic progressive policies are ruining cities in America. Now, we don't just host people we agree with. Uh, we don't we endorse his views, but it's a debate and a discussion. And it was very well attended, actually, at the Commonwealth Club. We have constantly events and programs addressing all of the issues, you know, that you mentioned and, and uh, are related to um, the state of San Francisco today. I will say a couple of things personally. Um, I have a home also in San Francisco and um, it's a condo uh, where I stay sometimes when I'm up there for a few days. And um, a homeless shelter is proposed for two blocks away, a 250 bed homeless shelter. And I am being asked as an owner of a condo nearby to write to the city to protest the um, building of, or, you know, turning of a building into a homeless shelter. My response is, so there are homeless people sleeping on the streets in the neighborhood wouldn't you rather have them housed than not? Uh, but this is, there is a NIMBY, and, and my fellow residents in my small building um, are all good-hearted people, but there is a, a NIMBY attitude here, and I just don't understand that. I would rather, you know, if there are funds available and a building's available, provide shelter than not provide shelter. So there is still that, that NIMBY view. Um, I also think that the solutions to homelessness, uh, they don't always work well. And um, I know we're trying different things here in San Jose. San Francisco's trying different approaches. 
Um, I'm actually, we, I have a formerly homeless sibling and my family and I uh, have come up with and for 15 years have had a system for housing her and making sure she has the services she needs and so on. And um, she has severe mental illness. And um, there's a way for families and people to be involved in this uh, that where there's perhaps more trust. And um, so I would just say all those who are homeless have family members and they have friends and they need to get involved. It's not just an abstract program to be handled by municipalities and so on. Everyone, uh, a friend of mine who runs an organization that works individually with uh, those who are homeless, uh, calls uh, it relational poverty, poverty of relationships. Uh, that is often how people become homeless. Uh, they don't have anyone who is assisting them or advocating for them and so on. So I have some different views on this from personal experience. Uh, and I think there's much more of a role for family members and friends to track down and assist uh, their, their family members, which can be done. That is so true. So interesting. And I think you're absolutely right about this is not just San Francisco. You know, I've um, during the sort of trough periods of the pandemic over the last couple of years, I've, I have actually traveled a bit. In fact, I moved. I moved from Washington, D.C. to here in, in July, uh, July of 2020. Um, but, you know, looking at I visited my mom in Seattle. I've been to New York recently, Washington, D.C. Um, yeah, right here in San Jose. It's kind of everywhere. And um, yeah, it feels like it's reaching crisis proportions in many, in many cities. So I like your approach. I'd like to kind of shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about um, other organizations that you've either founded or, you know, been advocating for. And what's the common thread that sews them all together? Well, they have varied widely. Uh, we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of the first organization that I was involved in founding, which was a youth services commission in the town where I grew up. And it's still where another classmate and I in high school worked with the city council to set up the youth services commission, and it's still thriving. Uh, and, um, you know, on down to a number of others. Um, I think the thread is a need that's not being met, some type of uh, organizational home or basis that can give it longevity, uh, some type of program or organization to meet an unmet need, some type of base for it, whether it's government or philanthropy or private, uh, private entity of some kind, a university. Uh, and then, of course, the resources and funding to, to make it possible. So going back to that very early example, uh, when I was in high school in a, a lovely town uh, in the East Bay called Lafayette, there were no programs for youth in the town. Families took their kids on trips, engaged them in sports, etc. cetera. Uh, Kids were getting involved in drugs, you know. There were some issues. This was late 70s, late 60s, early 70s. So, uh, you know, a couple of us, my cohort, who's later went on and became a psychiatrist uh, uh, in on the East Coast, um, we approached 
the city and said, you know, we think there needs to be something here. And uh, it was still a fairly new city. It had been incorporated just a few years before. And there hadn't been any thought about youth programs. And um, so the, the mayor, then mayor, gave us some great advice and said, you know, go around and talk to every member of the city council and any other organizations that do something like this and look at models and come back. And we did, and we wrote a charter for a youth commission and um, got the city council to pass that. And uh, again, it just celebrated its 50th anniversary. So again, a need, a process to get it established. In that case, it was very smart to make it a city commission because the city is going to be there and it's you know, it's a stable base for uh, an organization. Today, the Youth Services Commission does everything from, you know, host social events to, for kids to holding hearings at the high schools on housing needs and the general plan for, for the city uh, and getting student input on those issues. Uh, so from social to serious. And um, so again, again, that was a very first model, uh, but... Um, it has those criteria, uh, the, the need, the base, and support. Can you talk, I know you've been involved with uh, helping younger social entrepreneurs, even as you discussed there, sort of obvious. And how, how do you nurture and help young social entrepreneurs? Well, um, I'm very uh, delighted to see when I was... Uh, in my early 30s, I started a research institute, first under Stanford's umbrella, uh, on international security issues like arms control and nuclear weapons and so on. Uh, and then we became separate. Uh, Stanford, we grew bigger and they decided that they would rather not write all our checks and pay our bills and so on. So we became a separate entity, but closely affiliated. And um, there were a number of young people. Some came as interns, uh, some came, uh, you know, also in their 20s or whatever. And all of the young people really who worked at that institute, which no longer exists, it was called Global Outlook, um, have gone on to found their own organizations. And so I think it's a combination of modeling of what can be done. If you have an idea, if there's a need, you, you have a you know, something you want to change or accomplish, you can pull together the, the capacity to do that. So we're talking about the nonprofit sector, really. And um, so it's modeling how to do that, engaging young people in it, sharing your contacts, and then being willing to be there and advise and support as the years go on. And then in, in the case of those uh, who started out with me, um, they have then advised and uh, grown and, you know, I, um, they support me and we talk and we, you know, as colleagues, we exchange information and contacts and so on. So they are, have more than accomplished, you know, what I had accomplished uh, back then. And so I'm very excited to see what they're all doing. And uh, one of them, for example, uh, has founded an organization in Hong Kong called the Center for Asian Philanthropy Studies through which she encourages uh, successful uh, leaders, corporate leaders mainly in Asia, to give back through philanthropy and provides a lot of data and research and studies on the impact of philanthropy and other indicators. That's Dr. Ruth Shapiro. And, um, you know, very proud of what she's done. So 
I, I almost everyone who worked with me back in that institute has gone on to start something or contribute in some unique way. And again, they you support them, and then over time they support you and inform you and enrich your your knowledge. And uh, so that's the nonprofit sector again. So uh, this has been Line of Sight with Gloria Duffy. I'm Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship. And I'm Don Heider, Executive Director of the Markless Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara. Gloria, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Don. And thanks for the work that you do. 